Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And welcome to What Happens in the Woods, a podcast based in the Pacific Northwest that delves into true crime. You have joined us for a bonus episode with a special guest. I am very happy to introduce uh, local Seattle author of the book Deep in the Woods by Brian Johnston. Thank you so much for joining me today, Brian. It's my pleasure. So Deep in the Woods is a book detailing the events of George Warehouser's kidnapping uh, took place in May of 1935 in Tacoma, Washington. It's a very right. local um, case. It's, it's in the era of, of snatchings, their you know, coined phrase. Yep. Um, our listeners kind of know the story. We did release an episode on it. The case absolutely fascinated me. Um, can you kind of share with us what compelled you to research this? Yeah, absolutely. I just uh, I've written a couple of Northwest centric books, you know, one about J.P. Patches and one about uh, the TV show Almost Live, and I was looking for some more Northwest centric material, and I was just digging around doing research, and I stumbled across this case online, and I wasn't familiar with it, and so I started digging deeper and. The more information I found about it, the more fascinated I became. And before long, I came to realize that this was easily one of the most fascinating stories that I'd ever stumbled across in my life. It was, there were so many layers to it. It just blew my mind. And the fact that nobody had written a book about it, I couldn't believe it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, at least from what I understand, the... Maybe the reason that it wasn't done was just because, number one, it's older, but it doesn't have that serial killer element that people are looking for here in the Pacific Northwest. That's one probably a major reason. But another reason is that uh, the warehousers didn't like to talk about it. Right, right. Um, so can you kind of start off with giving like basic information on, on how the story begins? 1935. Uh, this was only a couple of years after the Lindbergh baby kidnapping and murder. And this was also uh, kind of the, the tail end of when crime was running rampant across America with the big name criminals. 
So just a year earlier, Bonnie and Clyde were gunned down and Babyface Nelson and John Dillinger and Machine Gun Kelly was thrown in prison. So this was all happening right around that time. And kidnappings, snatchings, as you'd mentioned, were all the rage because the kidnappers realized, hey, gosh, I could make a lot of money without putting myself in danger as much, they foolishly thought. And so that's why uh, that's how George Warehouser got snatched because of that. You know, some kind of stupid criminals thought that they could make an easy buck out of it. And they found that uh, they could and at the same time that they couldn't. (laughs) <laughs> as we'll come to discover. Yes. So, yeah, that's that's kind of how it all came together. But this kidnapping was not something that was planned well in advance. The kidnappers kind of saw a opportunity and, and jumped on it. It was really kind of a, a three or four day planning thing that came about just because of some random article in a newspaper about one of George's or George's grandfather had died. And one of the kidnappers, uh, I I don't want to say one of the kidnappers because Margaret, first let's give who the kidnappers are. Sure. Three kidnappers. There was the mastermind, a guy by the name of Bill Mahan, who was a career uh, bank robber. And then uh, I guess the second in command would be uh, uh, Bill Mahan, excuse me, it was uh, Harmon Whaley. And his 19-year-old Mormon wife, who'd never been in trouble in her life. So I guess I consider it two and a half kidnappers because she really didn't have anything to do with the kidnapping other than kind of going along with it. And she saw an article in the newspaper, an obituary of uh, George's grandfather had passed away. And she just kind of made a passing comment. Hey, look, this really rich guy, Warehouser just recently died. Huh, that's interesting. And Bill Mahan went, huh? Rich guy dies. Hmm. That means he's going to bequeath a lot of money to his son. That means he's going to be also really rich. Maybe he's got a kid that we could kidnap. Ding. That was really about it. That's how the whole kidnapping came about. It was just a crime of opportunity. Yeah. And they snatched George. Yeah. And it was almost too easy. He just—he was. was there. He was there on the street. He really shouldn't have been there. Uh, yeah, he—he yeah. uh, uh, George. Um, the Warehousers were very—they were rich people, but they were—they were as they were described as a very retiring family, which means they didn't like a lot of limelight. They didn't like drawing attention to themselves. They tried to live them their lives as just like most everybody else. And they purposefully wanted George and their kids to have just a very normal lifestyle. So George would frequently walk to school and walk home from school. Sometimes he'd get a ride with their so-called chauffeur, who was really just the gardener who drove them places. And uh, in this circumstance, he was walking home from school. He was supposed to meet his sister at the Annie Wright uh, Seminary School and catch a ride back the you know the last half of the ride back but he decided he just didn't want to wait around so he started walking it's only a half mile yeah most and he was walking back and he didn't know that he was being cased he was being followed by the kidnappers they'd been tracking him for the like the previous two days watching him go to school and come home from school and so it was i mean it's like right out of a movie the bad guys in the car watching the kid walk down the street 
and they saw him walking this one direction and they went, hmm, where is he going to come out on the other end? So they drove around to this little dirt parking lot and sure enough, George walks through this hedge and and uh, Mayhan jumps out of the car, runs up to him. Hey, kid, can you tell me where Stadium Way is? George thinks nothing of it, just an adult asking him a question. And then all of a sudden, he gets grabbed and thrown to the back seat of the car and off they drive, kidnapped. Yeah. Boom, just like that. Yeah, it, it definitely was just aligned perfectly to, <laughs> for good or bad, it was yes. aligned. Yeah. And yeah. um, so research is a huge undertaking in something like this. Um, I know you had mentioned that it took you about two years to get this written. I'm sure research was a good chunk of that time. Um, how hard was it to find information? Uh it was interesting. How's that? Um, <laughs> the biggest resource was, I had two major resources. The biggest was the FBI files. I had 2,500 pages of FBI documents. And the FBI said, you want more? And I'm like, no, I think that's plenty. <laughs> oh, wow. Plenty. Um, it's With the Freedom of Information Act, you can get pretty much anything you want. Sure. And so... They gave me just huge amounts of files, and it was really interesting going through those because you're seeing the the uh, the documents, the missives between J. Edgar Hoover and his second in command, and the agents in the field sending letters back to Hoover, and you're just describing everything that's going on in the case. Wow! You think detail, and then you had the newspaper articles, and there were a lot of those. I had over, gosh over 200 newspaper articles. You have to understand, this was a huge story. This was a really big story, um, especially in the Northwest. Uh, it was on the front page of just about every major newspaper in America. I mean, it was on the front page of the New York Times. Right. Um, the London Times sent a reporter over uh, across, <laughs> across the Atlantic to cover this story. So, yeah, it was a big deal. Reporters... And journalists were documenting about 40,000 words a day in print, which is about half a novel. So half a novel a day combined uh, print was uh, going out every single day while this case was going on. So there was a lot of content to draw from. And then on top of it, there was the court documents. I actually got to go down to the National Archives uh, on Sandpoint Way, and just sit there and go through and read, you know, exactly what was going on in uh, when when it got to trial and things like that. And then on top of it, I got to actually talk with George, uh, 85 years after the fact, and, you know, get his take on a lot of things as well. So there was no shortage of information. Wow, that is amazing to be able to get the first hand account even mm-hmm. even decades later, it's still his account. It's his remembering of what happened. It's his words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a cool thing, and he was he was so cool about it too. Because when I'd been doing my research, the articles I would read frequently would make a comment about how George doesn't like to talk about the kidnapping. The the family will say George doesn't like to talk about. And so when I finally tracked him down, which was no small task, it took a while. 
I finally found this phone number that went to a, a voicemail that they would check once a week. And I left a message saying, George, my name is Brian Johnson, local author. I'd love to talk with you about your kidnapping if it's not an uncomfortable subject for you. So imagine my surprise that when three days later I get a phone call from George saying, this is George Warehouser, happy to talk with you. Uh, um, it's not an uncomfortable subject for me. It happened a long time ago. And I'm like, wow, wow that's a surprise. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Oh, and then I got to share some. This this is part that that just was classic. And so I go to his house and uh, and I'm you know interviewing him, and he's just being nice as can be. He was 94 years old at the time, and this was two years ago, so he's 96 now. And we just sat in his sunroom, and his daughter was there, and we chatted, and I asked him questions, and and uh, we just had a really nice time. And he got a really big kick out of seeing like old newspaper pictures of him when he was nine years old. He thought that was pretty cool. So we talked and talked and talked and everything went fine. And then about afterwards, about two days later, I get this phone call from this gentleman. And he's not exactly a lawyer, but had a very lawyerish vibe about him. He represent, he's, he's some type sort of representative of the Warehouser family or his corporation. Mr. Johnston, I understand you interviewed George Warehouser. Yes. Well, you have to understand that some of his family members are very concerned about this. Oh. I'm like, really? And why is that? Because George doesn't like to talk about this. And I'm like, well, I'm going to disagree with you there because he was more than happy to talk with me about this. Right. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, so what was this? What were you talking to him for? Because uh, I wanted to interview him for this you know, what I'm writing. So you're writing a, a, a fiction book. No, nonfiction. So is this an, it's not an article? No, it's, I'm trying to go think to myself, what are you missing here? This is a, a book about his kidnapping. And he's, he's silent on the phone. He's like, and George was happy to talk with you about this. I'm like, yeah. He's silent. Finally goes, huh, weird. Okay, Brian, you got lucky. Good luck with the book. And he hung up. All right, then. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad I could spell, spell that out for you, what I did and what, what happened. Yeah, That's very, very interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I mean, that's exactly what I got from a lot of my research, too, was that the family doesn't like to talk about it, that possibly George didn't want to talk about it. Um, and that's why all of these years have gone by without it really being something that somebody wrote a book about or even a movie was made about it. Um, nothing really happened that put it out in the limelight because the family I, just did not want to. Yeah. In fact, uh, George's, one of George's daughters uh, contacted me and said that uh, still, she still says that as she grew up, her dad did not talk to her or any of the family members about the kidnapping. Mm -hmm. It just wasn't a topic. And so she, you know, she heard stories and learned a little bit about it throughout the time. But she says, as a result of this book, she's been talking with her dad about it. And now she's learning stuff about the kidnapping that she herself had no idea about. It's so interesting that yeah. I, I'm, and maybe it's part of um, that era, that time, things, details like that. You, you didn't share those details. Those were private things that happened in your life, your children didn't necessarily need to know them. Maybe that has something to do with it. 
I'm sure that did have something to do with it. I also think it has to do with just the way the Weyerhaeuser family is. Mm. They just don't like drawing attention to themselves. Sure. Just the way they, I mean, that was the way they were back in 1935, Mm -hmm. and that's the way they are now. Wow. It's just amazing. You really hit gold being able to speak with him and, and getting that account. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I consider myself very lucky. I bet. So I want to talk a little bit about the ransom letter. Um, In the book, you mentioned a reference to the kidnappers uh, making, um, and I had read the ransom letter, uh, and I didn't understand this reference at the time. Maybe you have more information. There was a a note in there where it says, you know, we're not going to be sitting, quote unquote, sitting sitting behind the mailboxes. Yeah. What was that in reference to? Uh, you know, I don't know the particulars off the top of okay. my head, but I do know that there was a a crime that took place in the Northwest earlier where somebody was, uh, I, I don't know if it was a kidnapping or what the, the situation was, but the person was hiding behind a mail, behind one of those big blue mailboxes. And oh. that was the reference. Okay. And evidently people from this area who are familiar with that case, that case, which apparently was a pretty big case at the time, would under, would recognize the reference. So it was a stupid uh, mistake on the kidnappers' part to bring that up because it immediately made people go, okay, they must be from the Northwest because nobody else would understand that reference. Interesting. Yeah, I, at the time reading the, the ransom note, um, it, it didn't didn't make any connection to me. I was trying to think of any famous case, you know, any anything anything at all across the country that that would have referenced and it yeah, didn't didn't make any sense. I thought that was interesting. Um also the outrageous demands aside. I mean $200,000 at that time as we know unbelievable amount of money. Yeah. When you're yeah. reading the ransom letter at the end there's this paragraph that's almost as they're boasting. You know, mm-hmm. here's what we know. Here's what we're we're kind of. These are our qualifications yeah. of how we're going to throw. You know, do this and go through this, and what they're capable of. Um, I'm I'm kind of curious to to know your thoughts about how that was written and and you know what what your thoughts are on that note because it's just so specific about what they can do and what they've been doing. So the kidnappers again. This was pretty much written by Bill Mahan. Mm-hmm. And he tried to make it sound like that they were, you know, smart people when they really weren't. And it, it was just, you know, they're, they're saying that this, they've been planning it for years when they hadn't been planning it for years. Right. And they're trying to make it like, this is a business, this is a business situation, act businesslike um, when they weren't business people. Again, right. they were just, they were, they were stupid criminals. That's really about it. Yeah. But the demands were, so ridiculous. They were so absurd. Yeah. You know, number one, they wanted $200,000 in small unmarked bills. All right. And to give you some context as to how much money that is, in today's money, that'd be three and a half million dollars. Okay. Back in 1935, during the Depression, the average income was $1,500 a year. Mm. So $200,000 is the equivalent of 133 years of the average person's salary. Okay. So that's a ridiculous amount of money. The Lindbergh baby kidnapping, the initial request, the initial demand by the kidnappers for that was $50,000. So this right. is four times as much as that. Um, 
And the warehousers didn't have 200 grand in small unmarked bills laying around. They just didn't have that. And they had five days to come up with the money. And then one of the other uh, ransom requests was, uh, don't tell the police. Right. Right. Um, (laughs) Don't tell the press. Double ha 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 ha. What was so funny was it said, don't tell the press. So what did the Seattle Times do? They posted the ransom note on the front page of the newspaper. Right. (laughs) So... And so they also said, you know, uh, we want the money in small unmarked bills. It'll be in 20s and 10s and 5s. Right. All right. Um, and don't, and, and it's, and we don't want it marked. Well, of course, the FBI didn't have to mark it. Right. They don't have to put little marks on every bill. They simply had to write down what the serial number was of all 20,000 of those bills. And that was eventually how they captured the bad guys because they spent, the FBI, they don't go halfway on anything. Sure. I mean, they went all freaking in on this. And they had five days to, to take this money that they, and they only had like, they, it took them a while to first collect the money. And then they had to log all 20,000 um, serial numbers. And that took over 4,000 man hours to do. It was this remarkable undertaking to be able to put that together. And what they did, and again, yeah. that's what, that's how they got the bad guys. And, doing yeah, that. exactly. Um, so like myself, I think you kind of found the communication between the kidnappers and the warehouse of family, something out of a, a fiction novel, you know, had oh. the involvement of the newspaper advertisements and, and meeting up. It was just kind of open to all sorts of, of mistakes or failures. Um, yeah. That first attempt, did you, do you have any information on why that didn't work? Well, on the, the first attempt of what? Um, when he, when uh, John Warehouser went the first attempt to, to actually drop off the money to them, and he uh, gets to the last yes, point, yes, yes, or yes. there was an empty can, okay. and there's, yeah. So, yeah, let's back up first a little bit. So... For the viewer or for your listeners who aren't who didn't get an opportunity to listen earlier on, what uh, the kidnappers one of the demands was with the family is they were going to communicate to each other using personal ads in the Seattle PI. Okay, and so when the Warehouser family was ready to make the money drop, they would place a personal ad saying we're ready to make the exchange, and then they would sign it with a code name, Percy Mini. And so the kidnappers would flip open the newspaper every day and they'd go to the personal ads and they would look for anything that had the code name. And then they would know, okay, the Warehouser family is is ready to to make the exchange. And so that's how the kidnappers knew that that the Warehouser was ready to make, uh, ready to pay up. So then they sent a letter saying, okay, you're going to go to this location with the money and this is what you're going to do. All right. So the, Here's how it played out. So George's dad, with no FBI, no police or anything, got in his car and drove out halfway between Seattle and Tacoma, somewhere down near Burien. And he went to this abandoned house. And there was a little stick in the ground with a piece of fabric attached to it, like a little flag that you wouldn't even notice unless you were looking for it. Mm -hmm. Underneath it would be a tin can. 
and inside the tin can would be a note, which would take him to the next location. And sure enough, he goes there and he finds the little flag and he finds the tin can and he finds the note and it says, go 700 yards up the road to the next location, you'll find another flag. Drives up, he finds the little stick with the piece of fabric, but there's no tin can and there's no note. And he's crawling around on his hands and knees with a lighter or matches or something in the dark. You know, it's midnight. Right. Because today, that day was the day that he had to make the exchange or else. Right. So he was terrified that if he didn't find the note that took him to where he was supposed to drop off the money, that they were going to kill George. And so he crawls around on his hands and knees for two hours and he couldn't find it. So... You know, he goes back and he waits and the kidnappers call him the next day and they're all pissed off saying, what the hell? Why didn't you leave? You know, why didn't you take the money where you're supposed to? And he said, there wasn't a note. And, you know, the the kidnappers never really addressed why there wasn't a note. Mm -hmm. They obviously left one there, but maybe a car drove by and it got knocked away, hidden somewhere in a bush or something. Mm -hmm. It just it was supposed to be there, but it wasn't there. So the kidnappers gave him a second opportunity to go to another location, find another flag, find another tin can, find another note. And this time it was there and it took him to another location, rinse and repeat, did the whole thing until it finally said, go to this place, leave your film light on, leave the money in the back seat, walk down the road. He did that. Somebody jumps out of the bushes. It was Bill Mahan and drives away with $200,000 in cash. Absolutely crazy. I can't, I can't imagine the panic of, yeah. you know, I followed your instructions. I've done what you've asked me to do. It didn't work. And what do I do now? It's not like I can pick up the phone or I'm not going to text anybody. I'm not going to email somebody and ask, what do I do further? Yeah. You, you literally are stuck. Yeah. You're at the mercy of, yeah. of the kidnappers. Exactly. And yeah. then you don't know if they're going to actually live up to their end of the bargain and give me my son back. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, in the end, George is, is safely returned. He's relatively unharmed, as unharmed as you can be in a kidnapping situation such as this. Um, the persons responsible are caught. They're convicted. Everything is kind of, so, you know, neatly wrapped up. But it doesn't end there because this entire story, what makes it, I think, as incredible as it is, is that there's kind of a twist between Harmon and George Warehouser at the end. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, this is, uh, I'm always a little hesitant to give this away, but I guess my thinking on this is when I went to go see the movie Titanic, I knew that the boat sank, but I still enjoyed the movie anyway. So sure. uh, that's going to be my, my attitude toward this. So 25 years after Harmon Whaley goes to prison in Alcatraz, um, and he's there at the same time as uh, um, Al Capone. Actually got in a couple of fist fights with Al Capone. Oh. Uh, yeah, he was in the music room, and Al Capone hit him with a mandolin case. And Harmon was all mad and was going to hit him back with a saxophone, but he didn't want to dent his sax. And so, but anyway, I mean, priorities. <laughs> but but uh, Harmon, after he got out of prison, 25 years after the fact, he called George Warehouser because evidently you can just pick up the phone and call rich people anytime you want. And so he calls George Warehouser, and at this time George is like in his 30s, and he's 
about three years short of becoming the president and CEO of this massive corporation. And he goes, hi, George. It's your old kidnapper, Armin Whaley. I just got out of prison, and I could sure use a job. Wow. And George hired him. Yeah. George hired his kidnapper. Yeah. And I asked him, George, why would you do that? And he says, uh, I don't know. When when he when he was looking out for me when we were back in Spokane and they had me in a closet, he he took care of me. He he was a reasonable man back then. And he struck me as a reasonable man then. And I just thought he would appreciate it. That wow. was his reason. He thought he would appreciate it. So he gave him a job. And definitely is probably, like I said, the most incredible part of all of this story is is um, human nature, I think, would be, you did something wrong to me. I'm going to get back at you. Yeah. And yeah. Um, to, to not have that thought process, that not, not have that feeling of vindiction mm-hmm. is very a redeeming quality. You know, no, speaks it, very it, highly of him. It restores your faith in humanity. This Absolutely. is... This is a kidnapping case that does not end like any other kidnapping case you will ever find, period. It is, there are so many amazing little things to this story that on a nightly basis, I would run upstairs to my wife yelling, you can't believe what I just learned. Yeah. All the time I was doing that. There was just so many cool things that that the average person wouldn't know because they haven't dug through 2,500 pages right. of FBI documents. Right, right. Man, I, I, I envy you for being able to speak with him. I, I definitely yeah. envy you. I'm sure that was a, a just a huge, huge thing. Um, one last question before we kind of sign this off. Um, mm-hmm. how, do, how does it feel to be responsible for this, this story, bringing the story to light in this scope? It, it is, oh man, when I was writing the story, I, you know, to me, it was just, I'm just writing a story. Okay. But whenever I would, I would talk with people, I was astonished, A, at how many people weren't familiar with the story. Mm-hmm. And then when I would tell them, give them some details, I would watch their face just light up like, oh my God, I've never heard this before. And those who had heard it before, they were like astonished by all these little details that they weren't familiar with. Mm-hmm. It has become such, so gratifying. That's the best word. It's been so gratifying because everybody loves a good story. I mean, there is nothing better than life when somebody comes up to you and says, I have got such a great story to tell you. You know, your ears prick up. You want to hear it. Mm-hmm. Now I get to see that expression on people's face all the time when I tell them about the story. So it's a wonderful feeling. It is just a wonderful feeling. I love that. Mm -hmm. Well, I really want to thank you again for speaking with us today. I really appreciate your time. And um, how can people, you know, contact you, follow you? Well, um, (laughs) the the best thing you can do is is to pick up the book, honestly. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, anywhere, any bookstore, you can get it. Um, they've got a Kindle version. They've got a 
I guess they've got an audio version. I understand. Yeah. Yep. Yep. It's <laughs> in any platform you want to find it. And again, the uh, the, the uh, title uh, is Deep in the Woods. Deep in the Woods, the 1935 kidnapping of nine-year-old George Warehouser, heir to America's mightiest timber dynasty. Really long subtitle. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, for those who are, you know, that interested, uh, I, you can go to my website also, brianrjohnston.com. Um, but, um, you know, honestly, that's, um, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter. Um, but honestly, if the best thing you can do pick up a copy of the book. It'll make my publisher really happy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I definitely highly recommend that everybody um, search for that Thank book. You. I enjoyed reading it and I, I am a reader, so I, I will pick up pretty much anything, but even knowing about this case, even having researched on my own, this case and having information, it was so well written that I, these characters became real, even though they were already real people, they came real to me in Thank my you. head as I was reading it. So definitely everybody go check out the book. Um, any hints, any future projects? Well, I've actually got, believe it or not, I've got a book coming out next spring. Uh, and this one is a completely different genre. It's not okay. true crime. It's not even nonfiction. It's actually, I guess the be best way to describe it would be either soft sci-fi or speculative fiction. Kind of uh, think Black Mirror, but with a sense of humor. And that's going to be coming out next uh, late spring, early summer. Well, I can't wait for that. Definitely. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, that sounds right up my alley. <laughs> Anything that makes you think that's not normal, that's not good. the usual thing. I love it. Good, good, good. All right. All right. Well, thank you so much today for your time, Brian. I really enjoyed talking with you. And again, the book is titled Deep in the Woods. There is a lot longer of, of the name, but just keep in mind, everybody, Deep in the Woods um, by Brian Johnston. And thank you again. I cannot thank you enough. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. You enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.